So, okay, I have, I have too many, too many toys here today. Here's another toy. It's now turned on, and if you look up at the screen, it's the story of Purim. See how I did that? Purim actually begins this coming Wednesday night uh, at sundown and continues on Thursday, of course. As Janet said, it's a time of joy and celebration, celebration, rejoicing the fact that another attempt by Satan through a man named Haman, okay, was thwarted by the God of the universe. It's also a time of blessing others. That's what the um, uh, the Mishmachanot, the baskets, uh, are all about. And it's also a time of reading and listening to uh, the Megillah. Now, we are not going to read the entirety of the Megillah today. However, I would like you to commit to reading the book of Esther, either this coming Wednesday night or Thursday during the day. And um, maybe someone will have a wonderful testimony about what God spoke to you uh, during that reading uh, of the book. So a lot goes on. We're going to go through the book in a very quick fashion. This is kind of like a seminary course that you run through, you know, an entire book uh, in a day or two. So fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. First of all, Esther becomes queen. There is the uh, feast, the feast of King Ahasuerus, and there will be a exam. I, an oral exam after service today to see if you can actually say Ahasuerus. I love it when I go some places and they preach in the book of Esther and they go, King Ahasuerus, which is like Ahasuerus in Tennessee. But um, So there's a feast for the king. The king gives his own feast. Uh, queen Vashti, his queen, is invited to parade herself. If you read it in the Hebrew, it's literally in the raw in front of all of his noblemen to show off what a beautiful wife he has. Of course, she says, no way, Jose, which is a um, Hispanic way of saying Ahasuerus. <laughs> and Vashti is deposed, no longer uh, the queen. She is deposed at the advice of the uh, noblemen uh, of the uh, provinces of, of Persia. And so a decree is sent out to search for Vashti's replacement. Mordecai um, is encouraged uh, to send his, his cousin. There's a preparation for Esther in the king's palace. And lo and behold, guess who's chosen to be the next queen? Esther. Then we come to Haman's plot. First of all, and this is the plot that everybody forgets about, though it's not Haman's plot, there is a plot to kill the king. Mordecai overhears it, Mordecai reports it, and it is recorded in the king's chronicles. Now we come to the plot to murder the Jews. Our beloved dear friend Haman is elevated by the king to be second in control in the entire, all the provinces of Persia, second only to the king. Then we have the part where Mordecai refuses to bow down to our friend Haman because he figures everybody needs to bow down to him if he's in charge. There is the public declaration of the decree to kill the Jews because Haman is so upset 
that this one Jew, Mordecai, would not bow down to him, that he, in his rage and anger, decides that he wants all of the Jews of the provinces of Persia killed. There is the Jewish response to this, of course, sorrow and grief. There is Mordecai's plan to send his cousin Esther, and Esther promises to go to the king despite the fact that it might cost her her life. Next, we come to what's called Mordecai's triumph. First, there's the setting. Esther finds favor in the eyes of the king. There's a banquet that's planned, and the first one is held. The banquet with Esther, King Ahasuerus, and Haman. Then Haman plots to kill Mordecai. It's not good enough that he should wait until the 13th of Adar at the end of the year when all the rest of the Jews are killed. No, he wants him killed right away. Then there's honor that's given to Mordecai. The king wants to honor him. Why? Because the king couldn't sleep one night. He has the Chronicles read to him as a form of sleep addition. And in the Chronicles, he remembers, oh, this guy saved my life. I need to honor him. And so when he tells, about, tells us a story about the man who needs to be honored to Haman, he, of course, thinks it's him. Who else would it be? But it turns out it's Mordecai that the king wants to honor. And so guess who um, parades uh, Mordecai all over the city saying, this is the way that a man is honored who does service to the king, our dear beloved Haman. Well, now Haman and his, his, his plot are exposed at the second banquet. He dies on his own gallows, which were built for Mordecai. And Morty is given all of Haman's possessions. And so you go from Mordecai's triumph to Israel's victory. First, there's a preparation. Esther petitions the king. King Ahasuerus issues a counter-degree. There's joy and gladness among the Jewish people, and many of the Gentiles and the people of Persia become Jews during the Jewish defense of their lives. There are victories the first and second day of the conflict, and Haman's sons are also hung. And then there's celebration. That's what we're doing today. The Feast of Purim is inaugurated, Mordecai becomes second in power, second only to the king. If there's one word that I think about when I think of the story of Purim, it's providence. Providence. The concept of God's providence is key in the book of Esther. In part, I believe, it was written to show how the Jewish people were protected and preserved by the gracious hand of God, saved literally from the threat of annihilation. You see, although God disciplines his covenant people, he never abandons them. Although God disciplines his covenant people, he never abandons them. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, is the sovereign controller of history, and his providential care can be seen all over and all through this book.
consider. He raises a Jewish girl out of obscurity to become the queen of the most powerful empire in the world at the time. He ensures that Mordecai's loyal deed is recorded in the palace records. He guides Esther's admission into the court of the king. He superintends the timing of both of the banquets. He is involved in the king's insomnia and the cure that the king uses for it. He sees that Haman's gallows will be used, but not for their intended purpose. He gives Esther favor in the king's eyes. He brings about a new and corrective decree and the eventual victory of the Jewish people. Dear ones, while God's name is not mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther, he is all over the book of Esther and all through the book of Esther. And what about Esther herself? Well, think about it. Actually, that slide should have been up before. Read it quickly. Even though God disciplines his covenant people, he never abandons them. Boop. Messiah. (laughs) Messiah in Esther. Think about it. Just like Messiah, Esther puts herself in the place of death for her people, but receives the approval of the king. She also portrays Messiah's work as an advocate on behalf of the Jewish people and on our behalf. And also, this book reveals another satanic attack to destroy the Jewish people and in turn the line of Messiah. But our God continues to preserve his people in spite of opposition and danger, and nothing can prevent the coming of our Messiah. So here's Esther in a nutshell. The story of Esther, historically, fits in between the 6th and 7th chapters of the book of Ezra, in between the first return to the land led by Zerubbabel and the second return to the land, which was led by Ezra. It is the only biblical report of the vast majority of Jews who chose to remain in Persia rather than return to Israel. And the clear message of the book, I believe, is that God uses ordinary men, ordinary women, to overcome impossible circumstances in order to accomplish his purposes. Is anybody here ordinary, except for the fact that you are in Messiah? We can be used if we are open to God's will and we understand his purposes. Chapters 1 to 4 describe the threat to the Jewish people. Chapters 5 to 10 Describe Israel's triumph. Chapters 1 to 4, the threat to the Jews. Now, the story begins in the king's winner's palace in Susa. It's a lavish banquet with all the trimmings, food, and liquor that anyone would want or imagine. It is a disgusting and incredibly effusive display of royal glory a display to his people, and Ahasuerus proudly and arrogantly seeks to make Queen Vashti's beauty part of the pomp and ceremony. When she refuses to appear, the king is counseled to depose her and to seek another queen. You see, it's feared that all the other women in the land will become disobedient to their husbands if Vashti's not punished. Mordecai 
convinces Esther to be a part of the contest. She wins the favor of the king, wins the royal beauty pageant, but at the urging of Mordecai, her cousin, she's told not to reveal to the king that she's Jewish. And with her help, Mordecai is able to warn the king of an assassination plot, and his warning is recorded in the royal documents. Meanwhile, Haman... Haman... becomes captain of all the princes of Persia and orders all the people in the land to bow down to him. But Mordecai refuses. And when he learns that Mordecai is Jewish, Haman plots for a plan to kill all of the Jews. His rage and his hatred grow exponentially and daily. He casts lots, or purim, to determine the best day to have the Jews killed. And through lies and bribery, he convinces the king to write a decree that all the Jews in the empire will be killed in 11 months on a single day, the 13th day of the last month of the year, the month of Adar. Well, Mordecai asked Esther to appeal to the king to spare the Jews, and so Esther decides to see the king and reveal her identity to him. Mordecai knows that perhaps she has been called for such a time as this. Then there is the triumph of the Jews. After fasting and asking her people to fast, Esther appears before the king and invites him to a banquet along with you-know-who. At the banquet, she asks for a second one, seeking just the right moment to speak of her request to the king. And Haman, the proud and egotistical man that he is, is flattered by the invitations, but later is enraged when he sees Mordecai. And so what does he do? He takes his wife's suggestion to build a large gallows for Mordecai. You see, he can't wait the 11 months for the edict's date to come. And that night, the same night, King Ahasuerus can't sleep, and he decides to treat his insomnia by having the palace records read to him. And in reading about Mordecai's deed, well, he wants to honor Mordecai. And so he tells this to Haman, who mistakenly thinks that the king wants to order him, and he tells the king how such a man should be ordered, honored, only to find out that the man's not him, it's Mordecai. And that he'll be the one leading Mordecai through the streets of the capital. Don't you love that part of the story? He's humbled, he's infuriated by having to do this for the man he hates with all of his being. And so we come to Esther's second banquet. The king offers her as much as half of his kingdom for the third time. This Esther must have been something. She then makes her plea, and she exposes Haman as the man behind the attempted annihilation of her people. The king is mad. He finds Haman begging on Esther's lap and mistakenly uh, looks at it as a sexual advance and gets even madder. And he decides that Haman is to be hung 
on the gallows that had been built for Mordecai. By the way, these gallows were 75 feet high. And they were designed so that the whole city could see the punishment intended for anyone who would dare to refuse bowing down to Haman. Instead, it's Haman who's put in the public attention. Now, Persian law sealed with the king's ring could not be revoked, but at Esther's request, the king issues another new decree, and it's sent to all the provinces of Persia, saying that the Jews are allowed to assemble and defend themselves on the day that they were supposed to be attacked by their enemies. And the outcome of the first decree is reversed, and there is great joy among the Jewish people. Mordecai is elevated in position and made head of Haman's house. And when the 13th of Adar comes, the Jews defeat their enemies in all the cities and provinces of Persia. But they do not take the plunder of their enemies. The next day becomes a day of celebration, and an annual Jewish holiday, which is called the Feast of Purim, is inaugurated. The story then closes with Mordecai being promoted to a position second only to the king. What a story. You could almost say, boy, somebody should make a movie out of this. And somebody has, times ten. Some of them are pretty good, some of them are pretty schlocky. The point is this. The God of the universe the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, is a God who will always remember his covenant with his people. And there is nothing that the satanic powers in the world can do to prevent his promises from being fulfilled. Ever since Satan tried to destroy the Jewish people before they were ever birthed out of the womb of Egypt, God has always provided a way of deliverance. And for us as believers in Messiah, he provided us with the ultimate way of deliverance, did he not? Through the death, burial, and resurrection of the perfect Lamb of God, Messiah, our Redeemer, and our Yeshua. On this day that we celebrate Purim, even though it's not Purim itself, on this day that we celebrate Purim, Let us celebrate redemption. Let us celebrate God's providence. Let us celebrate God's sovereignty. Let us never take it for granted. Let us understand that everything that we have is his. Oh, I see some people going, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything that we have is his. Oh, by the way, the whole earth is his. Oh, by the way, all the cattle on the hill are his. All the grain in the field is his. All the fruit on the trees are his. All the money in your pocket is his. Not just the tenth. All the money in your pocket is his. I saw an amazing teaching this week. It was on the verse that says, I will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm going to give three people a chance to answer the question. Why will he say to the servant, well done? 
you don't count. Anybody have a guess? Here's what people normally say. We've lived a good life. No. Here's what somebody says. We've served our Messiah with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. No. By the way, that phrase, I will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, only appears one time in all of the scriptures. It appears in the book of Matthew, and it has to do with money. It has to do with money, with talents. I was thinking about this on the way over here. This may sound weird. Our God is a capitalist. He gives, he gives a servant five talents according to the servant's ability and tells him to invest it so that more can be produced. He gives another servant one talent and tells, or two, and tells him to invest it according to his ability. And then to one, he gives one talent. The first one invests the five and gets five more. Welcome into my kingdom, he says. The second one invests the two and gets two more. Welcome into my kingdom. You see, it's not how much you gain for the kingdom. It's what you do with what he's given you based on your ability. And the third one says... Well, I just hit it because I was afraid. What was he afraid of? He thought, bear with me, that it was his money he was dealing with and that if he didn't increase it, God would be angry. Dear ones, it's God's money that we're all dealing with. And it's interesting also When he tells us to tithe, he tells us to tithe of the first fruits. In other words, if somebody makes $10,000 in a month, he tells you to tithe the first $1,000 as soon as you get it at the beginning of the month, not the last $1,000 at the end of the month. Because what faith is involved if you wait to the end to see if there's anything left over? One other thing, and I know I've deviated from Purim, but I think it's important. God says, bring the offering into the storehouse. He doesn't say, take your offering and bring it into the storehouse. Because it's not theirs. What you're bringing is his. You're bringing it back. And by the way, His isn't just the 10%, it's only the 90%. So what's the the lesson of all this? The sovereign God of the universe, the God of providence, the God whose will and purpose will be done, the God who saved the Jews in the book of Exodus, the God who saved the Jews in the book of Esther, the God who saved the Jews in the intertestamental period through the Maccabees, the God who saved the Jews during the Spanish Inquisition, the God who saved the Jews during the Holocaust, and the God that will save the Jews in the attempted Holocaust that will come in the future is the same God that saved you from the ultimate Holocaust of death. We owe him our allegiance.
we have to understand that everything we have is his. And when you do that, it kind of lifts the burden off. I, I don't have to worry about what, what am I going to do with my money? Well, guess what? Not my money. It's his. And all I have to do is be a good steward of it. Not just tithing, but investing. The other 90%. God promises blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And so to the God of creation, to the God of the universe, to the God who owns all things, to the God who gives freely and expects us to do good things with what he gives, be all glory and honor and praise. And let us all say together, Amen. Shabbat Shalom.